0: Hi, I'm Madvi Romani. And I'm Rena Grobe. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week, we'll be discussing a new topic or trend so you can stay informed the easy way. So Reena, what are we talking about this week?
1: So this episode is our 100th episode. Yay! Yeah, it also coincides with two years of Misinformed. So, double anniversary. So I thought that I would take the chance to just talk at Madhvi about something that I am ridiculously obsessed with. And in this case, when I say something, I mean someone. Those of you who came to the Disobedient Drinks last week, thank you everyone for coming and for donating, we really appreciated it, might have noticed that I have a portrait of a Ridiculous looking man. I don't think I've hung it up yet, but it will go into my entrance hall. I'm going to show Madhvi a picture and have you describe this photo, and then I will tell you who it is.
0: I've actually seen this before, but it's been a while. It is a pale looking guy wearing a kind of turban. He's dressed in velvet with this like velvet and gold sort of jacket. It looks very sultanish. He's holding a sword, he's carrying it like a baby in his arms, and he's wearing white. In the background is a stormy, cloudy, mystic vibe going on. It's mysticism all the way, basically. This original painting actually
1: hangs in the Portrait Gallery in London, so it's probably where you last saw it. It is a painting by Thomas Phillips, it was painted in 1813. And it is of Lord George Byron, who I love. If I was to start a religion, I would make either Oscar Wilde or Lord George Byron my god, I guess you would say. That is who I would choose to worship. Your
0: supreme leader. My
1: supreme leader would be... Why? Lord George Byron. Okay, Lord George Byron is the world's most ridiculous person. I don't know how much you know about him.
0: I've read his poetry and I didn't like it much. He's considered to be one of the greatest English poets. He's one of the romantic poets. I really like Blake. I don't know if you know much about Blake. William Blake? Yeah, he came a bit before Byron and he was also, I don't know, when he was 11, he sat down on a park bench in London and he says the prophet Ezekiel sat down next to him. He made beautiful paintings. He invented his own actual philosophy and religion and system And he wrote really good poems. So I was a Blake person rather than a Byron person, to be honest.
1: So we'll have to do an episode on Blake later. (laughs) We each have our obsessions with 1800s pale. I'm just assuming that William Blake was pale.
0: But Blake actually did make his own sort of systematic sort of religion. Did Byron do the same thing? No. What was his belief? In a
1: way. I mean, I'll tell you a little bit about he didn't really have a belief in that sense. But I would make a religion out of him. I also think that, for me personally, Byron's poetry is completely irrelevant. Like, not irrelevant in the sense of, like, I don't care about it, but my fascination with Lord George Byron has little to do with his actual literary talents, and more to do with the ridiculousness of him as an individual.
0: Okay, what would your religion be based on Byron? Like, what would the central commandments hierarchy ways of being philosophy based on byron before we know anything about him what would it be
1: oh man i haven't thought about it in that much detail but let's have a think well the problem is is i don't know how to answer these questions without giving away
0: a lot about lord george byron okay so let's start there and then we can form a religion
1: at the end instead of our three things that we usually do we will initiate you into the religion of lord george byron
0: it's weird that a feminist podcast is making a white man.
1: It is very weird, yes. This is true. I do think that it kind of points to something very super fascinating in history, though, is because like we know a lot about these ridiculous men in history, but not about the probably just as hilarious, fun, and ridiculous women in history, because they were sort of pushed aside and not mentioned quite as much, whereas like we tend to idolize men, which I know I'm doing right now with Lord George Byron, but... It's not as well documented, the women that existed at the same time, you know? His daughter. His daughter, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will definitely mention his daughter, because she's amazing. Lord George Byron was born the 22nd of January, 1788 in London. His dad was called Mad Jack Byron. Why? So there seems to be a bit of like a family trait here of gambling and womanizing and boozing and just being a ridiculous individual. His mother and father's relationship or marriage deteriorated very quickly and Mad Jack actually committed suicide. They don't really know 100% for sure. Essentially, Lord Byron would go around telling people that his dad had cut his throat. Nobody his own throat. his own throat. Nobody knows if that's true, but that's what Byron told people. He did die when Byron was like 3, whether or not it was by suicide, one doesn't know. But actually, his father had married his mother for her money. He had had a marriage previous to that that was also terrible. His dad was not a good person. He was, like, abusive and horrible and a scoundrel and all the terrible things. But actually, Lord Byron grew up in Aberdeen in Scotland. He actually was not a lord at this point. He inherited the title of lord from his great uncle when he was 10. He actually grew up quite poor because, you know, his dad gambled away all their money and blah, 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 all that stuff. So. He becomes a lord when he's 10, and then he goes to Harrow. He's sent to the school of Harrow, and he has, I think, a couple of things that are quite noticeable about him. One, he's very pale. He grew up in Aberdeen. What he going to do? Scotland. No, he was just pale anyway, not because he lived in Scotland. And he had a clubbed foot that he wore an iron brace for, and he was quite self-conscious about it, and... It wasn't so great. He didn't really have a really good time at Harrow when he first started there, but eventually he sort of got into it. And then he went to Cambridge to study at Cambridge. He was also very fascinating because he was very into sports, but because of his iron leg brace, he was sort of limited to what he could do. So he's very into swimming, he was very into horseback riding, he was very into boxing. He started to learn how to box because he was kind of bullied when he was at school because, you know, he had like a an iron leg brace and kids are horrible, so they made fun of him. He studied at Trinity College, Cambridge. He loved dogs. And this, I think, is the perfect example of who Byron is as a person. So the rules at Cambridge said that he could not have a dog, but he loved his dog. So what did Lord Byron do? He got a bear.
0: How do you, How does one get a bear?
1: It was a tamed bear that he rescued from the circus and he would keep it in his room. He would walk it around campus on a leash because the rules didn't say no bears. They just said no dogs.
0: What did he do with his dog?
1: The dog was at home with his mother or something. Okay. Like He couldn't bring it to university with him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this is why I like Lord Byron. So you were talking about religion before. Byron is sort of like, you tell him he can't do something. So he does the ridiculous opposite thing that wasn't in the rules. I can't have a dog? Fine, I'm going to have a bear, because you don't have any rules about me not having a bear. Anyway, he loved swimming so much that actually one of the pools in Cambridge is still named after him to this day. So after he graduated from Trinity College, he did this thing called the Grand Tour, which is essentially where like young noblemen go to Europe. It's like a gap year, kind of, you know what I mean? Like You go and you learn about art and stuff. So I was listening to this podcast where they're talking about Lord George Byron, and Dr. Corrine Throsby is on, who is an expert in Lord Byron. She actually teaches at Cambridge University. And she refers to Byron's mentality towards who he was open to sleeping with. She refers to him as an equal opportunist. So he didn't really care what gender someone was, what age someone was. It was all chill in his book.
0: He was down with everything. He kept on falling in love yeah, with keep- a lot of different people, yep. like, in really fast intervals. Mm-hmm. Like, when he was child, he fell in love with,
1: fell in love with, right? Like, had a childhood crush on a girl called Mary, and he actually, for a time, refused to go back to Harrow because he wanted to stay. Also, in this podcast, Dr. Corin Thrasby is talking about, because people make a lot of, they do this thing where they try to define Byron's sexuality based on modern-day standards, and she really makes a point of saying that sexuality wasn't key to someone's identity in that time sort of in the way that it is today so byron had relationships with women he had relationships with men but he personally never made any comments about his sexuality so whether or not we as modern-day people say lord george byron was gay he was bisexual he was pansexual there is no way of knowing how he would have identified so the only sure thing we can say is he had relationships with women. He had relationships with men. He did not care if the person was 30 years older than him or younger than him. In fact, there's rumors that he had a relationship with his half-sister. So it turns out that he didn't really even care if you were his half-sister or not. He was also known to like fall in love with his cousins every now and then. So he was literally an
0: equal opportunist. Why do you think people fell in love with him?
1: I think because he was very charming all the things that i've read about him everyone really makes an emphasis on the fact that he like he was beautiful he was pale he was brooding there was something very like charismatic and attractive about him byron is often kind of like credited as being the first modern day celebrity so his first book was called child harold's pilgrimage and he says that he went to bed and he woke up famous which is actually probably kind of like an exaggeration. That's probably not what happened, right? It probably went over time, but the hype started. And he actually was the first person to have a fandom.
0: What did fandom look like in the early 19th century?
1: So his fans had a name, it was called Byromania, Byromaniacs. Not kidding, his wife actually coined that
0: term, he eventually got married. We'll get to that in a second. Byromania just sounds like People who have a penchant for just using byros instead of any other (laughs) pen. That's amazing. Which is me, actually. I will only use byros. I will not use fancy pens. But yeah,
1: so he says that he went to bed and he woke up famous. What's sort of noteworthy about this is that his sort of rise to fame was roughly at the same time when mass printing first became a thing. So because of that, his work was able to be printed and distributed a lot more.
0: But at the time you had like, for example, Percy Shelley, who was also a romantic poet, or you had Blake, you know, who were also printing things, but mm-hmm. they didn't have cult followings. So mm. they didn't have cult followings.
1: What was different about Lord Byron, I think, was that his work spoke to women. And Dr. Corin Throsby, she also says this, she says that he's very good at flirting with the reader. And then he does this thing in his poetry, especially in his early works, where he'll sort of leave things out and he'll put like an asterisk so sort of the reader can sort of imagine what was left there like something was too saucy or too scandalous to be put in so he was very very good at evoking the reader's imagination and sort of provoking them to think something and he just spoke like women loved his work i think on the first day that it was published his novel the corsair sold 10,000 copies on the first day which was really impressive for the time So he got fan mails en masse, and he was sort of famous enough at that time so people knew where he lived. So he had an affair with this woman called Caroline Lamb, and it was a scandalous affair. She was married. It was like very on-off, on-off. One time at a party, he kind of insulted her, so she smashed a wine bottle and like slashed her wrists. So scandalous. And she mailed him her pubes. And they were bloody. And she added a note being like, oh, I cut a bit too close and sent them to him.
0: Was but- this a thing? No,
1: this was just Caroline. This was <laughs> not a thing. Me, tell me more about Caroline. So Caroline, or Lady Caroline, had an affair with Lord George Byron from March to August of 1812. It was well publicized. It's like, not that long. Not that long, no. And everyone knew about it. She was 26. He was 24. So they first met at a society event at Holland House. She was the one who apparently first coined the term mad, bad, and dangerous to know, which is essentially Lord Byron's tagline, but Caroline Lamb, apparently. They don't really know who said it, but it's often attributed to her. She was best known for her work, *Glen Vron, a gothic novel, Her husband became prime minister after she died. She died at 42. She had two children. The thing is, is that I'm sure she's a super fascinating lady. I mean, she mailed Lord George Byron bloody pubes. I just feel like that's a bit of an odd thing to do. No,
0: that's going to be one of our religious things. If you like someone, mail them. Bloody pubes.
1: pubes. But yeah, so she was like a scorned lover at that point. Their affair had ended. But Byron got fan mail en masse because people kind of knew where he lived because he was famous enough. It was mostly from women, and it was mostly anonymous. And Dr. Corin Rosby actually said that She's like, most of the women had no interest in actually meeting him. They felt compelled to write him because he offered this space for them to express their sexuality. And so, like, in a lot of the fan letters, the women would write things like, I would never imagine that I would write something like this to a complete stranger. And so, you know, his work allowed them this space and this freedom
0: I would love to hear the content of some of these letters this 18th 19th century fan mail sounded like. So in one of her books,
1: Dr. Corin Throsby mentions one of the fan letters that someone wrote, that a woman wrote to him. She points out that a lot of them would mimic the style that he would write in. She has this one in her book, and it says, Why did my breast with rapture glow, thy talents to admire? Why, as I read, my bosom felt enthusiastic fire. These are the type of fan mail that women sent
0: to Lord Byron. Is this how you feel? No. <laughs> Do you not feel like I don't your feel bosom on fire, fire. when no. you think of Byron? Okay.
1: He created this hero character which we now know as the Byronic hero who is kind of like a glamorized, romanticized version of himself. So, you know, it would be a very pale, good-looking aristocrat and there would be enough similarities between him and himself that people would be like, Are you really just writing about yourself, Lord Byron? But it was kind of like an exaggerated, romanticized version of him. Interesting about Lord George Byron, he had probably what we would nowadays call an eating disorder. He like went on all these really weird diets where he would like eat potatoes with vinegar, or he would just eat like a slice of toast a day. He really struggled with accepting himself and his body.
0: But yet, on the other hand, he had this totally celebratory fantasy of himself that he fed and this image and all that kind of stuff
1: yeah he has that weird duality of being like overly confident but also deeply insecure
0: yeah i mean that goes together yeah hand in hand (laughs) somehow linked yes so he he like struggled with accepting
1: the way that he looks he was very fascinated he went to greece and he got sort of fascinated with the vampire stories they had there but the vampires that they had there were sort of like small, hairy, gross, ugly looking characters. In Greece? Mm-hmm. In Greece, yeah. Whereas he... So there was this one really, really, really famous night in Geneva. Do you know where this is going? What happened mm. on Lake Geneva?
0: Oh, Frankenstein was written there, right? Frankenstein By was Mary written there. By Mary
1: Shelley. Yeah. So it's the summer of 1816. It's a cold, rainy, stormy night. It's like the wettest summer in Geneva ever in Switzerland. And so Percy Bysshe Shelley, Mary Wollstonecraft, because at the time she was not yet married to Percy Shelley, so she was not called Mary Shelley yet. William Polidori, who is Lord Byron's doctor, and Lord Byron are in this house, and they decide that they're going to write ghost stories. So they tell ghost stories, and Mary Shelley tells Frankenstein. She was 18. She's so cool.
0: Do they tell them or do they have a competition? They told them.
1: They told them. They told ghost stories. And then she later wrote it down and they were published. Polidori told a vampire story, but instead of doing the version of vampires that was commonly known, he sort of turned the vampire into like a Byronic hero. So essentially, Twilight is thanks to Polidori, thanks to Lord Byron, essentially. Because this pale, thin, beautiful
0: vampire is Lord Byron. So Robert Patterson's entire career is thank you to Lord Byron. Yeah, essentially. Actually, people
1: thought that Lord Byron wrote vampire, which was spelled with a Y, not an I. So it was misattributed to him. And actually, Polidori committed suicide later. Fun fact. Not so fun fact. Byron was like really weirdly morbid too. He liked to keep skulls and drink out of them. He liked to use them as drinking cups. So. When Percy Bith Shelley died, he really wanted to keep Percy's skull to drink out of. And everyone was like, no, we're not giving you the skull. That's weird.
0: But where did he get his other skulls to drink out of? I don't know. Where does one get a skull to drink out of? There were these grave robbers at that time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine that Lord George Byron went grave robbing. No, but he
0: could have paid someone. Right?
1: Yeah, maybe we can get a Ouija board and ask him. Maybe he'd respond. They burned Shelley's body, actually, and his heart didn't burn, and so they gave it to Mary Shelley to keep. Just so you know what kind of people these were.
0: Is that a myth? I mean, maybe it's a myth. Yeah, so there's a lot of debate about this one. So apparently Edward John Trelawney, who is a novelist, when Shelley's body was blazing away on the beach, he reached into the fire and grabbed the still intact heart and then gave it to Mary Shelley, who wrapped it in a copy of a poem Shelley had written and stuck it in her drawer where it remained for 30 years, until it was finally buried with their son. But then an obscure 1885 New York Times article points out that Trelawney may actually have grabbed Shelley's liver and not his heart. And the piece references the expert advice of somebody from the Milan crematory. And the quote that they use is, "'The heart, being hollow, is easily destroyed.' while the liver, which is the most solid mass of internal organs, resists the most intense heat. The whole thing is weird, yes. It's very goth. I mean, I think they were the goths of their time. They were the goths of their time, yeah. But yeah,
1: he settled in Venice eventually, where, and this is one of my favorite facts about him, he had a house, and he had a menagerie of animals in the house. Here is the list, according to Percibus Shelley, of animals that he had. Ten horses, eight enormous dogs, three monkeys, five cats, an eagle, a crow, and a falcon. And then, in a follow-up letter, he adds, P.S. I have just met on the staircase five peacocks, two guinea hens, and an Egyptian crane.
0: They were all inside the house? Uh Uh-huh, inside the house. And how big was the house?
1: must have been massive if he had ten horses in this house. And
0: how much did it stink?
1: Oh, it probably smelled
0: terrible. And did the animals fight? (laughs) I have so many questions.
1: Unfortunately, all we know is what Percy Bysshe Shelley described in this letter. Do you think he was joking? I don't want to believe he's joking because I like the idea of Lord Byron, who was like an animal lover. He loved animals in this massive house in Venice, just with 10 horses in it. I love that mental image. It's amazing to me. It's just a ridiculous image. Yeah, so he is living in Venice. He has this menagerie of animals. He has an affair with a married woman, sort of like his longest lasting relationship. But he also writes probably his most famous piece, which is Don Juan, which is a comedy. And it's a joke on the fact that English speakers mispronounce other languages. So it's not Don Juan, but Don Juan. Funnily enough, the boat that Percy Bysshe Shelley died on in 1822 was called Don Juan. It's a comedy that was his most famous work. And I guess throughout his entire life, he kind of like lacked purpose. And so he decided that he was going to do something with his life. He was going to go to Greece and he was going to fight in the independence war. So the Greeks were trying to get independence from the Ottoman Empire, but he went, he joined up. He never actually fought. He died before he got that far. So he died on April 19th, 1924 at age 36 in Missolonghi which was back then belonged to the Ottoman Empire.
0: He also had syphilis and gonorrhea for a lot of his life, right? Because he was just sleeping with everyone.
1: There's a famous letter that Shelley wrote Keats, where he says that they both hadn't heard from Byron for a while, so they got very concerned about him. So Shelley went looking for him, and he found him in Paris, where he had nearly died from malnutrition and dehydration from having too much sex.
0: I don't know how to respond to this.
1: I think no one knows how to respond to that. That's who Lord Byron is as a person. But yes. So he dies in Greece.
0: Did he talk about can we go back to his lack of purpose? Did he actually talk about this at all? No, no I so think
1: he just said that like he wanted to do something with his life. Like he wanted to contribute to something.
0: But he wrote like the Armenian dictionary and all this kind of stuff that didn't count? Or? No. So he wanted to fight. He wanted to fight. He was into battles. He used to like pretend with his servant on his lake that they were at battle and stuff like that so it sounds like a little bit of a glorification fantasy of himself as well that
1: yeah also like a romanticization of war and fighting Mm. for something i mean they are romantics right like in the sense of the literary term not like i'm gonna take you to a candlelit dinner
0: (laughs) (laughs) i like that that's your (laughs) definition of a romantic (laughs) in that tone of voice too Mm -hmm. but yeah
1: So he was supposed to go sail on this ship, but before the expedition could sail in February 1924, he fell ill, and he had a lot of, like, he was weakened, and he made a partial recovery. But then in early April, he caught a cold. Oh, yeah, and then he was leeched, you know, where they bleed Mm. you. And he contracted a fever, and then he died on April 19th.
0: They all died very young, all those romantics. Shelley, Keats, and Byron. Byron,
1: 36. Yeah.
0: Marini Young.
1: So he had kind of a tragic end to a ridiculous life. One of the things that is really interesting to note, and I think that she deserves an entire episode on her own, he had one legitimate daughter, but he left when she was very, very young, and they never got to know each other. His daughter, Ada Lovelace, who is credited with writing the first computer code. She sort of worked out what computers could do in the future. That was pretty, pretty cool. She's a pretty cool lady.
0: Yeah, she was a mathematician and really smart. And yeah, the first programmer. Okay, my question is, which I'm still like really fascinated about with you and Byron. Is, yeah, why Byron? Why Byron? What is this thing? Why do, how does it inspire your own life? What, what do you think that's admirable or amazing about him? I know he's ridiculous and you like all these funny facts and these... Like, yeah interesting ways. But what is it, essentially?
1: I don't know if I think that anything about him is admirable. Like, I don't think I would want to be Byron, and I don't think I want to live my life in the way that Byron did. But I think that more so with Lord Byron, it's just, he was so flamboyant and ridiculous. I mean, I think if I met him, I would hate him, right? If I went to a bar in Berlin, and I met someone who was a Byron type, like, There are loads in Berlin. I think what I really, really like about Lord Byron and what I think personally makes me so interested in him is I feel like he wasn't confined by things in the sense of he had an iron leg brace, but that didn't stop him. He
0: he wasn't allowed to have a dog, so he, he got, got a bear. bear.
1: Yeah, and it's just this like the snarkiness and the cheekiness of who he was as a person making fun of the fact that English speakers thought that the way they said anything was correct, you know, Don Hewin and Don Juan, the fact that he just very openly poked fun at these things. I feel like there's an aspect of, like, YOLO to him, and I also like the kind of, like, very humanizing facts about him, like, ah, yeah, you know, like, he struggled with his weight, and he was self-conscious and all these things so there's sort of a duality of this larger than life kind of ridiculous individual who at the same time is both humbly human and just there's something like this portrait in the London Portrait Gallery he's like you know looking over his shoulder a little bit he looks so flamboyant and ridiculous and I don't know there's just something about him where you're like yeah he's gonna do exactly what he wants to do he's gonna lead a ridiculous life He's going to be scandalous, he's going to break the taboos, he's going to scandalize people, and he
0: doesn't care. He's just going to go do his own thing. Great. So that's the basis of our three things. Three things you can do this week to be like the amazing Lord Byron.
1: And join the religion we're starting. So I think if I was starting a religion on Lord Byron, I think that the principles would be do what you want, regardless of what anyone else thinks. Don't be confined by anything Lord Byron is the perfect example of if someone tells you no, figure out a way to turn it into a yes. And I mean that in sense of like, if the university tells you you can't have a dog, get a bear. That is the only sense I mean it in, not when it comes to things like consent. If someone tells you no, no means no. <laughs> just feel like adding that.
0: I would say number two, like byromaniacs, everyone in this religion should just use biros. By and I think the last thing that I would say in
1: this religion is be an equal opportunist like Lord Byron. Don't let yourself be confined by things such as age. I mean, make sure everyone is above 18 and a an legal consenting adult, obviously. But if someone was 30 years older than Byron or 30 years younger, Byron didn't really care. And gender, sexuality, age...
0: All these things didn't matter to him. Also, practice safe sex, because he did have syphilis and gonorrhea for most of his life.
1: Yes. So, thank you for listening. Until next week.
0: Goodbye. If you liked this show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also help us by supporting us on Patreon for as
1: little as €4 euro a month. Visit patreon.com slash
0: misinformed. For links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the
1: underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, request or just to say hi. misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.